0: You call hamburgers steamed hams? Yes,
1: it's a regional dialect. Uh, What region? Uh, Upstate New York. Well, I'm from Utica, and I've never heard anyone use the phrase steamed hams. Oh, not in Utica. No, it's an Albany expression.
0: How many of you work two jobs just to have enough money to be broke?
1: So you think he has a bigger problem?
2: I think he's got a huge problem. Huge amount of money.
1: As Trump mentioned, huge amounts of money.
2: We need to apportion our resources equally. Sounds to me like highfalutin city garble to keep all the food for yourselves. You should do what
0: we simple country folk call good old-fashioned equitable distribution of commodities.
2: Imagine what other groundbreaking ideas I could be thinking of. I'll be your visionary, and you do the things I come up with.
0: Front yes. Front. Yes. And the Judean Popular People's Front. Oh, yes. Yes. And the People's Front of Judea. Yes.
2: We're the People's Front of Judea. I
0: thought we were the Popular Front. People's Front. The impact of future shock does not depend on the nature of its victims. They are everywhere. But everywhere, and there are those who recognize the dangers and are turning toward the future. Because you know as well as I do, it's going to be
1: you. you, 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 you. Welcome, welcome to What's Left in Albany. Welcome to the show. This program covers the built environment, politics, and people of Albany, as well as the surrounding tri-city area and region, featuring discussions about our communities, our organizations, uh, local issues, and any projects to get it in an effort to get a full picture of what's going on. I'm Dan Platt, your friendly neighborhood eco-socialist, promoting the build-out of a solidarity economy and delegative democracy, waging my one-man clandestine insurgency against confusion and our post-liberal status quo, as we we cannot hope to change our conditions until we understand them. Whatever the outrages or joys we have for the city, we are going to find whatever is left. For once, I'm doing a show after I did a show last week. We're finally on schedule, folks. The train is moving out of the station. So uh, I am finally going to tackle two longer uh, stories, uh, as long as I have Times Union access at the at the moment. So I'm a little discombobulated. Um, this will all be edited out in post. But until then, maybe I should just play some music and get that same. Okay, so we have a tutorial. So let's see. Sometimes I save stories that are uh, attached to a Facebook post where someone from, say, the F- Facebook group I'm gathering it from, local groups of local people, giving their comments. So I kind of like raising those voices up along with my own. So it's not just me and whoever's writing, you know, bland journalism at the time. So let's see if I can find it. I uh, will give up in another few seconds. So I have two stories uh, just to give you a heads up. One is about the addiction, the methadone clinic on Central Ave. And basically it's uh, kind of a general outline. This is These are two older stories. One's from all the way back in 2018. I saved it thinking about, like, well, here's a local story. It's not going to fit in with my usual three-left show kind of work, um, but I think this is important, so I bookmarked it. And now it's relevant, at least to um, the mission of this program, which is to inform you about the general social problems of Albany. Because um, understand how social problems are interrelated, intersectional, you could say, is very key to what I consider important to wokeness. I didn't consider myself fully woke until I took uh, Social Problems. Uh, that's a 201 college course. Um, but I do have very strong memories of the 201 social problems. Key factor there is the ending paper about linking education and poverty. So it's like to take two of the social problems we covered and write about how they're in, uh, related and basically how you know school districts are performing in relation to the tax revenue that could be raised from the zip code. So urban poor school districts do worse, and thus even the promise of education will at least raise you up to middle class standard of income and what have you, which, as far as college is concerned, is still relevant or true, but it takes like a decade for your wages to get higher than, um, or they, they will grow at a steady rate while a high school graduate's wages can be that, you know, median of 30 grand but not really go much higher or they can go higher but not the same rate. Okay. So let's start with the something related to here in Albany we have the Albany County Land Bank which is a pseudo public private entity created by the county to manage the properties that are Uh, let's say someone's delinquent on taxes, it gets, or it's foreclosed on, not just by a bank, but it's uh, technically abandoned, or rather, no, someone's delinquent on their taxes and um, the county repossesses it. And then resells it either onto the market, or in this case goes to the land bank, which, in our our, uh, case, uh, is separate from the county. That way they can Take advantage of grants. Act as a nonprofit. They do not have to make profit as far as reselling properties, uh, especially that really need a lot of work. So they sell property sometimes for as low as fifteen grand if it's a fix or upper. So they've been they've had some success. They can point to all of the reselling, um, but it's still quite a long ways to go, especially with the vacancy crisis that is referred to in this editorial. It's an editorial, but let's start with a um, Supreme Court case. It's June, and that means it's Supreme Court news season because they basically release in bunches all of their rulings. So you'll get a lot of Supreme Court news trickled out for a few weeks. So it'll be like good news, bad news, good news, bad news, bad news, bad news. That's usually the theme I pick up on year to year when it comes to the Supreme Court. For every good ruling, there will be three bad rulings, which is general U.S. history. So here's one of them, one of those court rulings from the Supreme Court. What Tyler v. Hepburn County means for the future of property tax foreclosure systems across the country. And this is from a few weeks ago. There's nothing fun about tax foreclosure. Trust us. We wrote a whole report about it. Let me go back. This is published by the Center for Community Progress in their main blog. But when it comes to paying property taxes, the consequences are clear. Pay up or risk losing the property. So in that way, it's sort of kind of like rent. Uh, Or rather, it's rent on top of whatever rent you might be paying for. it Rent to a bank, rent to the owner. Maybe the bank is the owner. That's pretty um, ever-increasing these days. That consequence exists for a reason. Property has intrinsic and monetary value. And property taxes fund basic community services like schools, roads, parks, sidewalks, and public safety, presumably. The things that enable families, oh, only families, well, let's say any kind of family, to live and build wealth in vibrant, secure neighborhoods. That's quite quite a presumption there. But anyway, moving forward. Most people understand property taxes are a necessary part of the social contract, let's assume we have one in this country, that shapes and strengthens our communities. Indeed, most local governments report that almost all owners pay their property taxes on time. The problem is, what happens when a property owner can't or won't pay their fair share and walks away from the property? As the notices, warnings, and fines pile up and the property slides into delinquency and towards tax foreclosure, we ask a very important question. What is the most fair and equitable way to balance the interests of the property owner who has walked away from their obligations with the interests of the community? Now, being a lefty, commie socialist, eminent domain is, is in my toolbox as uh, if I was governing. You know, if, if a owner, property, private property owner, let's say capitalist, in this case it isn't. So big asterisk there. But let's say it is and they're abandoned it, then it's free game as far as I'm concerned. And if it's a matter of community safety, then it's a matter, it should be community ownership all the way. And first you have to seize the means, so to speak, or seize the means of living, which would be a house, or seize the means of community if it's a um, type of building for education or what have you. Regardless, this question is at the center of a case that was decided yesterday by the Supreme Court. Tyler... V. Hepine County in the case and here's where it's like okay my initial reaction of dirty um, leech landlord you know if they don't pay their taxes they should definitely lose that property put it in the hands of real people well in this case it 94 year old Geraldine Tyler stopped paying taxes on her condominium after moving to assisted living not exactly someone with a income passive or otherwise Habine county minnesota repeatedly warned miss tyler that she could lose her property and offered payment plans and resources to assist her the property also had unresolved liens in the form of mortgage and homeowners association fees which is again another type of tax it's not like that's voluntary after more than 5 years of not paying property taxes during which she accrued about Fifteen grand in unpaid taxes, interest, and fees, an overly crazy amount of money, but still, for someone on a fixed income and 94 years old in assisted living, she needs all that money for her health bills, likely. The county has foreclosed on and took possession of the property and sold it at auction roughly 15 months later, not too bad a turnaround, for about $40,000 and retained the access $25,000 from the sale. The Supreme Court ruled that by allowing the county to keep the surplus from the property sale, Minnesota law violates the Takings Clause of the Fifth Amendment. I didn't know that was still being enforced anywhere. But I guess when it comes to property, everything is still active. But as far as takings from your car, by the police, you know, Fifth Amendment. Okay, yeah, Fifth Amendment of the Constitution, not the Bill of Rights. Regardless. Continuing. The court has now made clear that state tax foreclosure processes must provide an opportunity for property owners to recover any access value in their property that might exist beyond the amount of unpaid taxes, interest fees, and costs at the conclusion of the foreclosure. Minnesota will have to amend its statute to provide that opportunity, which may require it to subject all properties to a public auction at the conclusion of the tax foreclosure or to appraise or otherwise value the property, and then include a mechanism to return access amounts, if any, to the property owner. Even though they're doing the, uh, the legwork of selling the property, kind of makes you wonder, I mean, she's 94 years old. Perhaps, I'll assume, she's not in a right state to sell her property. Otherwise, why was she still holding on to it? Why didn't she give it to someone else who could pay those taxes for her, um, in her name, perhaps, or she could rent the house or something of that nature and retain it if she wants to give it to a family member upon her death, maybe, and that's what needs to trigger that. So that's why she was just kind of like, Well, I'm not, I don't, this is the house I lived in all my life. I don't want to give it up. Maybe it's just emotional attachment. I can understand that too. But otherwise, it's just stuff at the end of the day. Needs to go to someone who will use it. Now, at this point, The full implications of the court's decision are unclear, given that laws and statutes governing property tax foreclosure systems vary dramatically state to state. We will offer additional perspective and guidance in the coming weeks on how states should reevaluate or modify their foreclosure processes. So then um, this article goes into what types of reforms could be done. Now, this isn't exactly how it's done in Albany County. Since, I'm not sure, since it's a land bank, they're not really making a profit off of it. And any profit that is made, we have a much long, longer tax foreclosure process. It could take years. And then once it's done, it takes another year to get transferred to the land bank. And then the land bank will list it and resale. resell. But the moment, but the real goal of that is to make sure that nothing stays blighted or vacant for too long. And that's... It's it's uh, it's very affordable. So is tax is the property tax foreclosure reform? Isn't is this reform needed? Any reform for tax foreclosure? So this case makes one thing clear: the property tax system needs reform. Now, of course, they're proposing something milk toast. In my opinion, I'll get into what I would want. The system, not just the final foreclosure event, had deeply historically inequitable impacts on communities across the country, from determining property value. Which is in self, you know, an albatross, to assessing and collecting taxes, to enforcing delinquent taxes. Our tax system, based on property, has intentionally and unintentionally stripped low income black and brown property owners of generational wealth. This is the overarching reason why we must push for property tax system reform. I would say we should abolish it, place it with income taxes, land taxes. At the very least, you tax the land, not the full value of the property, but only the value of the land. That way, there's, it's actually incentive to improve your house, and your taxes won't go up. Reform must be focused on more than just changes to accommodate the limited remedy of the court granted, Ms. Tyler. In our decade of work to help local governments and advocates address widespread vacant and abandoned properties, we've seen the impact of property tax foreclosure across the country. The neighborhoods with the greatest concentration of such properties are most often those with the greatest concentration of vacant, what some called blighted, properties. These neighborhoods also tend to be home to a majority minority residents. These communities desperately need tools so that they can help repair decades of racist policies and disinvestment. Unfortunately, most tax systems are designed in a way that causes incredible harm, especially to the black and brown or anyone experiencing concentrated poverty. This is why community progress is passionate. And, you know, speaking about the author here, they're a advocate of more fair and equitable property tax systems, though they're pretty vague about what they mean by that. What kind of reforms are they proposing? And I think I, when I read through this, I made a note, they're not really proposing anything substantial. Uh, put another way, yeah, they just say they need bold and substantial reforms. I'm not going to tell you how to do it. It's not like we could be doing it. So let's see. How could they pursue reforms? Again, they're just kind of vague about it. Let's see. The Supreme Court did not go as far as upending the practice of property tax foreclosure, as many feared it could have. Most states already have in place some mechanism to determine the amount of access value, quote unquote, in a property facing tax foreclosure, such as a public auction at the end of the foreclosure, and to return that amount, if any, to the previous owner. Those states that do not have such a mechanism will need to assess what type of reform they need to do. That's kind of goes about saying. So here's the... Let's call these the liberal reforms. The, the non, I would call them non-reformist reforms because they're not really upending the root of the problem, which is that property values are not really related to anyone's wealth or income or assets. That's why you get... 94-year-olds with a house and they still have to pay property taxes as if so allowing the property owner to recover what little value is left in their property after the owner has already lost it like what happened in Tyler v. Heppen County is like closing the barn door after the horses have already escaped what a great metaphor the best place to make the property tax system fair and more equitable is to focus on upstream measures here's their list Reevaluate property tax assessments to ensure that they are fair, accurate, incentive to market realities. That's just standard neoliberal stuff, though. Reevaluation. We just did that in Albany. Let's see. The ACLU successfully advocated for correcting overtaxation of property owners in Detroit, which disproportionately harmed Black homeowners. So I guess they were overassessed. So a uh, reassessment can mean that yes, these 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 properties are not worth what Zillow says they're worth. Provide the most vulnerable, lower-income owners, especially the elderly, with a range of tax breaks, exemptions, payment plan options, and other circuit breakers. We have that in New York, by the way. That was the big thing about that. Was our, we did all this already. Our tax reforms, adding circuit breakers, just to solve the the marginal problem of what do we do about the elderly who's, who are aging in place? We'll just put in a circuit breaker. We won't discuss that. The property tax system is disjointed because it's assuming it's it's a holdover from a feudal land system where property meant you're collecting rent of some kind and not the 20th century concept of mass home ownership. That's when property taxes should have went out the window because that's when we added the progressive tax progressive taxes like income and payroll were starting to get rolled out, but no, They didn't replace property taxes. They simply were added on top, and thus, you know, tax burdens increase. Create funding mechanisms in the form of grants or low-interest loans to help owners experiencing financial hardship. But again, it's like they shouldn't have to take out a loan to pay you rent. You know, it's like we're just rolling money around for the sake of it. Address other aspects that touch property acquisition and disposition. Like eliminating predatory loans, oh, that's great. Let's just abolish all Wall Street, then. You know, if if they can't if they can't exploit poor people, then you know they might might as well just close shop as far as uh, they're concerned. So, so that's that side of the issue. It's not really affecting us, but it's what's happening in the general country. More to our area is an editorial, which I will first read. The reaction from. Bill Braddow, uh, who is a former president of the Historic Albany Foundation. And I think he is also a officer in the Washington Park Neighborhood Association. I do not know what other hats he might have. But he's the poster here, so I'm going to read his comment. Well, maybe I should read him last. Because I actually haven't read the editorial yet. So it's from the Times Union editorial board. All, how many of them there are. Albany and other upstate cities must tackle the problem of vacant properties of greater urgency, but they can't do it alone. Why is that? The law doesn't allow them to, pretty much. Otherwise, I would love for local municipalities to take charge of these things and basically create a big public land, not land bank, but land trust, put all the vacant properties in it, and start allowing sweat equity payment, you know, people to use sweat equity and i mean it, in conjunction with starting a public bank to finance people's renovations. In some of Albany's poorer neighborhoods, vacant buildings remain a defining characteristic and a few problems are as pressing and damaging given how vacant buildings breed crime and pessimism. They breed them. Like like ponds, <laughs> like stagnant water they just uh, they breed these problems where crime pessimism where do they come from what causes them it's just the vacant building No, i hate i'm gonna i'm gonna be ranting about this if i if i don't stop myself all the ways that the editorial board talks about social problems as if they don't have social causes like poverty let's see if they mention poverty once bet you they won't okay they breed crime and pessimism discourage investment and threaten health and safety. Yes, why invest in a vacant property? Well, it costs a lot for one thing. When you could, like, It's cheaper to do green field development. That means you take a field in Colony or what's left of fields in Colony. There really aren't any more. So let's say Gilderland. Um, there's still open space there. And building a, a subdivision there is cheaper than uh, renovating anything in an urban area. It's simply a matter of cost. So let's not make it about whether people have the right mindset or not. It's hard economics are at work. So uh, let's acknowledge the progress Albany has made, says the editorial board. Until 2017, city officials didn't even know how many vacant buildings they were dealing with. But that year, Albany initiated a count of the structures, which provided eye-popping evidence of a problem that should be considered a crisis. Can they not say it's a crisis? Anyway, the city found... And that, by the way, this is the effort of the um, you know, building czar uh, Sam. It was another Sam, Sam Wells. They found a thousand and forty-four vacant buildings, most of them formerly residential. By and large, this is not a problem of the city's own making. Indeed, the prevalence of vacant buildings in neighborhoods such as West Hill, Arbor Hill, and the South End, these are the black neighborhoods, results from a confluence of factors that includes the racist. Classes redlining of black and poor sections of the city. Continuing concentrations of poverty and property values that remain too low to encourage investment. Now the thing about redlining is in the usual liberal explanation of it, there's sort of a lack of blame put on on the private sector. It's like the line map, the red line maps were created by the Fed as a way, as a guide for where they will. Well, actually, no, I guess it was for federal loans and grants. So, yes, it was a matter of the Fed saying, we will invest in these areas, but not these areas, because that's where the minorities live. But it's also just an economic assumption why people are going to be making more money, because their wages are double. So they'll be able to pay back the loan, and more likely, I mean, they were just making the hard economic calculations. They weren't being racist. But I can tell you, that means... The hard economic calculations that people are making based on our economic structures, that can be considered racist. That is was meant by structural. It's not something anyone really intends, except for when the slavery was started. The result is a vicious cycle from which it is nearly impossible to escape. Vacant buildings are a result of low property values, but they are well who determines what is valuable or not? But they are also a cause of low property values. Well, that's helpful. Ask yourself, would you be inclined to buy a home on a block riddled with vacant properties? Would you? Well, hey, that means uh, no neighbors. But it means that, oh, the neighbors could, could be um, Uh Would you be willing to invest in one of those properties knowing that others nearby might never be rehabbed? Well, that's just self-defeating logic, isn't it? If you don't rehab it, then no one else, of course, will. Still, as the New York Times' Emily Munson recently reported, the city has been attempting to address the issue by shifting more resources toward co-enforcement and by attempting to hold absentee landlords accountable. I'm not really. Um, I'd like to see some physical evidence of that. As a result, the number of vacant buildings in the city has dropped 7% in six years. It's now 974. Wow! That is progress, a bit painfully slow. I'll get to Bill's comment later. He actually does the map of how long, if we go by this rate, how long it will take to not have any vacant properties. Basically, the rest of the century. That is, um, let's see, one hurdle is that the city doesn't even have addresses for the owners of most vacant buildings, making it essentially impossible to hit those owners with citations for code violations and other problems. Well, to me, as a socialist, that sounds like this is right territory for eminent domain and reposition uh, let's see, redistributing property. I know that's a very that's a Maoist kind of thing to do, but you had villages where you had starving, destitute peasants, and then they were given land, and they lived back. While the city has hired two attorneys to work on code enforcement and housing issues, Those cases take months to work their way through backlogged courts. It doesn't everything. Which could be considered a good thing, depending on who you are. It is time to really tackle the problem with the urgency demanded of a crisis. For one, the city of Albany should shift even more resources toward code enforcement and tracking down absentee landlords. See, they're on the right track. They're just not doing enough of it. As if they have money to spare or something like that. But that's where it's like, well, where are they going to get these more resources? Where where, what resources? Really get? They're going to pop out of the ground? It must expand on the work it is doing to speed the pace of its success. But Albany and other upstate cities cannot tackle this problem on their own. Yes, they need institutions, perhaps some non-capitalist ones, since vacant properties are a byproduct—they're pollution of capitalist property relations. That's my, that's my analysis based on reading a lot. So they need more money, more money from the state to rehab vacant buildings and laws that make it easier to track down absentee landlords. Hold them accountable. That's what we need, accountability. When all else fail, fails, by the way, you know, when it comes to corporations, it's not, it's not like there are people that actually exist. Like I, I actually looked up, I wanted to look up who owned Westgate. Uh, via the uh, Sanborn map, with, uh, the property the property Sanborn map, from the county map. And it went to some address in Massachusetts to a corporation that, like, didn't have any contact info. I'm like, what is this? Is this real? Happily, this agenda dovetails with Governor Kathy hogels desire to increase New York's housing supply by 100,000 units over the next decade. Why build new when so many existing homes are waiting for a new life? why not embrace efforts that could add to the housing supply while also invigorating neighborhoods across New York that need a helping hand? Well, I can answer that because it costs less to buy new units, to build new units, despite it being pretty expensive. Rehabbing is even more because you pretty much have to rebuild it almost from scratch. That's why the city is kind of on a uh, taking a strategy of let's just demo as much as we're allowed to, basically. Even if we have to make up legal reasons or justifications, we'll just say it's unsafe and we'll demo. And that's one way they're decreasing the vacant building count, by increasing the vacant lot count. So no neighborhood can thrive when it is popmarked by vacancy. No city can succeed when neighborhoods are left behind. And New York State can't flourish when so many of its cities are facing a damaging problem that they can't solve on their own. End of editorial. So it's pretty much a call for more state funding for rehab grants. Now, interestingly, this is how my father was able to rehab two row houses, and uh, and we've lived in them uh, and kept our uh, rents below market value. But he was able to do that with like I think fifty grand was put in himself or by loan. There was a city loan, and then there was rehab grant dollars that he was using, and. We could bring those back. Um, We're still in austerity mode as far as this neoliberal system is concerned. So I'm not really sure what they're getting at here. Are they thinking that New York state government policy is just going to get reversed because Hochul is making it seem like we are by saying, look at how much money we're spending on this or that. We're increasing it, which reminds me of the numbers I was looking at back in 2013 uh, when I went to a school board meeting. And basically, because of the drop in property tax value, or the the, sorry, no, it, it wasn't property taxes. That's different. But it was there was a drop in because of 09 the crash, the economic crash. Remember that recession? There was a big drop in state funding going to the school districts. Big drop. And yes, it was raised a little bit each year. But even in six years, you know, Como announces. Uh, growth in spending on school districts, it still had not reached 08 levels. Or because of inflation, though it was still minor at the time, 5% a year, let's say, it was just keeping up with inflation. So even though the state was increasing spending on schools, saying, look at how much we raised the budget to go to local local school districts, it was still not keeping up or it was just keeping up. It really wasn't an increase at all. It was just keeping up with inflation unless that spending is tied to it and it's automatic. But no, you have to, it's not, so you have to, oh, the legislators get to say they're raising it every year when they're really just, same goes also for oh, grant budgets. They could stay, like, if the same budget is allocated every year, but 20 years later, it could be nothing. That, that could pin it. So now for Bill Braddow's comment, where he points out some of the, uh, some of the ridiculousness of um, that I have been doing as well, but in a much different fashion. I agree with the general sentiment of this article. You know, the whole state should be actually funding renovations since the free market is obviously not going to do it. However, the reduction of 70 vacant properties over the course of six years cited is not only slow, it can only be counted as progress if the properties are currently occupied. But how many of those were simply demolished, often at taxpayer expense, and resulting in a net loss of tax revenue based on a newly created vacant lot? The city's focus on punitive measures against property owners, though in some respects laudable, is often counterproductive. Get more carrots and sticks, right? If the buildings are underwater financially, no amount of fining is going to undo that math, just like the 94-year-old woman. Waiting for better results while allowing further, further deterioration and then conducting unplanned demolition only leads to greater disinvestment in the impact of neighborhoods. I once asked a city official if fines collected were directed towards benefiting the properties, properties they were levied against. In other words, what were the end results? Did the paid fines simply divert money from the problem and therefore help to perpetuate it? Or did they, at least occasionally, result in a repaired building? Well, first the city has to own the building first, or the owner has to get the money from the city when it's fined or something like that. My question was met with stunned silence, as if judging success by those standards was a foreign concept. Mostly because there are no tools in the city's toolbox to basically take fine money and then invest it into repairing buildings. That would require a land trust. That would require some type of community ownership that the city is not allowed to create. Um, or the, the county could. That's why they made the land bank. So either all vacant properties basically need to go in the land bank, but the land bank is only legally required uh, uh, able to get properties that are foreclosed on, or not foreclosed, delinquent in taxes. But what if they're vacant But not, but what if the, I don't know, shadow company in Tennessee is still paying the property taxes on it, which is still is weird, but there's weirder things in capitalism. So going on with Bill's comment, because of Albany city county structure on unpaid taxes and fines, the county, not just the city and state, has a central role to play in financing a solution. One step toward a solution would be for the city to be more transparent about demolition. You know, transparency solves everything. I'm a little pessimistic about that because, again, I guess we need to know something is not working, even though we could probably judge it with our own eyes, as Bill has pretty much done. How many properties were demolished between 2017 and today, and under what circumstances? If it's more than 70, and it almost certainly was, in parentheses, the painfully slow progress actually represents lost ground. In short, the current strategies are not yielding the needed results, and they don't amount to a comprehensive plan to address this problem. A new perspective is needed, and that will only come about with greater transparency and the realization that the perceived progress may largely be a mirage. Now, we cannot rely on, with our current power dynamics, for the city to be transparent in any even when we had hard-nose-grinding journalists, I am skeptical anyone was really held accountable for anything. After all, we had a political machine that got away with whatever they wanted. And we had... This was apparently the, the era of good journalism and strong newspapers. Always the Times Union in this case. So I'm not... I'm a little skeptical at best, pessimistic at worst, that transparency is enough. By new... um plans and new perspectives i would like to propose uh, a socialist one and i will be you know campaigning taking that to the bank so to speak when you know as, as i do green party politics in albany uh going forward this year and beyond let's see if the third party interest of 2024 factors into that at all it usually hasn't in past cycles we'll see what happens more comments from Bill brought out that I'm I'm just going to go down because he has addendums to himself. On a related note, that's touched on this article, redlining. The sin that originated much of this inequality had consequences beyond disinvestment. It greatly reduced the ability to accumulate wealth for minority families in inner city areas. But of course, in capitalism, you can accumulate wealth. It can still be taken from you by the market. You can, build, you can be paying to a pension all your life. And then in 09, you lost it. What good is building wealth when it was never really yours to begin with? Or you're in a marketplace where money can only go up. So he talks about the need for the ability for people to build intergenerational intergener- wealth. But that's not really freedom because then you're tied up with your parents and your family. But what if your family sucks? What if you need to split with them? Then you're, wealth- you're left with nothing. You're, you're choosing poverty. That's what you're giving up if, you, or if you're if you a gay young man. Those are the situations we put people in with this kind of property relationship. It's not just the values. The values are a byproduct. This is the materialist Marxist way of thinking about it. It's a byproduct of our property relations. It's all hierarchical. Thus, the society's hierarchical. So at uh, the 70 buildings in six years rate... And this is where he did the map. It will take Albany 82 more years, and that's five years into the next century, to get ahead of the problem. A city of almost exactly the same size as Albany, and in many ways in a less favorable position to address the problem, initiated a plan to address 1,000 buildings in 1,000 days. Yes, there were demolitions, but there was a slightly higher than 40% retention rate. What is Albany's current success rate? Now, he's referring to South Bend, Indiana. And they not only succeeded in meeting their timeline. This is the kind of person Bill Brado is, by the way. <laughs> uh, if South Bend can get through, um, get that much accomplished in such a short time, why should our city be content to wait an additional eight decades? Maybe we need to look at what Mayor Pete did in South Bend uh, regarding that. So maybe I could look that up for the next time. I don't know. I believe these numbers... Oh, no, that's uh, this is someone else's... Um, so this is a Richard Strain, a Pearson Strain. I believe these numbers don't speak to the wonderful things that the ACLB, that's the Albany County Land Bank, has achieved, with some very noticeable improvements in my neighborhood. I'm curious where the TU got their stats, but the number of vacant properties is not static and a very moving target. It may have been 1044 in 2017, but since then we've unfortunately stacked more onto the burden. So this article is telling a very incomplete story. You know, we need more data. With that said, um, basically you need to stack up the number of sales, the number of turned over vacant properties, what counts as vacant. You know, there's a lot of data collecting you could do. That's a team, like a team of five could spend a year doing that. Right now it's just Sam Wells and maybe some lawyers. With that said, I do think that the land bank is not doing itself any favors by not telling this story with clean stats on its website. At least I couldn't find anything after digging around But I do have this graphic from an email they sent back in 2020, you know, pumping themselves up. But this includes all jurisdictions in Albany. To show the total volume of properties that have been removed from the vacant column, but more important to paint a picture of what specifically has been achieved, to Bill's point, what exactly has been done with the property is acquired. Perhaps a dashboard. Dashboard is, is speak for like a all the data columns in one place. With numbers and a more-in-the-weeds report of how many folks have found homes or started businesses with the properties turned around by jurisdiction, would be nice to gauge success. This is actually my job now, so I'm getting into the jargon myself. So this is the performance highlights of the land bank. They acquired 243. This is this is in 2019, but I guess they published in 2020. 243 vacant properties they acquired. Uh, they have 93, uh, 150 vacant lots. They did five building stabilizations, meaning the roofs won't collapse. Uh, 16 vacant lots improved. What does that mean? motive And they funded 15 demolitions. They closed on 134 property sales, 74 vacant buildings, 60 vacant lots, 42 in focused neighborhoods, meaning the poor areas. so only 42. Oh, okay, this is going back to 2014. They've acquired 1,100 properties. Um, this is across all county, by the way. They've demolished or funded 75 buildings. They stabilized 74 buildings. So I guess it's a wash. Anyway, okay. Not good. I could go into the weeds, as they say well we're in the last 10 minutes so i could go i could just go off the cuff talking about land taxes it comes from a economist named uh, some oh, something george so it's called georgism to uh, do land taxes uh when mentioned and i covered this in my 3 left show cuz i have covered this issue so maybe i won't do it here but i can't focus on the what episode it is but i knew now i looked up because there was a um an organization that promotes land taxes, actually they did a study and they used Albany as their case study. Mostly because we're one of those cities, Rust Belt cities, that has a lot of public property. So our problem is we really can't collect a lot of property taxes. Now, of course, property taxes don't matter if it's all public, but of course then it's like, well, what funds the services that come from outside? That's sort of the thing that my city game doesn't, so then it goes into wider economic reform issues, right? You know, you can't just have a communist city and a capitalist country. Um, but that's, that's something to consider. But land, land taxes, it's like we would get a little bit more money switching to land taxes. And we'd have all the benefits of it because everyone's tax burden pretty much, it, it equalizes things, at least in a progressive direction. Poor people pay less. Middle income people also pay less. Rich people pay more. Because it's based on the land value, or by rich meaning those with the desirable property that would be worth more, and those that are in unfavorable neighborhoods will pay less. Thus, they'll maybe have actually have the cash to fix things up. So, at the moment, Albany provides grants for painting your house, uh, full renovations. Really, hit or miss. The funding is just isn't what it was in the '80s back when my parents and their generation were um, trying to do something about blight, affordable housing. And and we're kind of left with their strategies not being applicable. We need new strategies, ways of crowdfunding for group homes, group housing, co-ops, stuff like that. So the other story I have is uh, longer and not... Oh, you know what? Here. Um, Speaking of... What the original quote-unquote sin of our country is, the sin is the the first sin is in redlining. That that's just the 20th century with uh, the New Deal, and how the New Deal wasn't for a good deal for everyone. But here's a story I can relate, sort of, but it's on the back burner here, from March of this year. It's about land back. Uh, land back is the concept that we should give as much land, quote-unquote American land, back to first tribes indigenous peoples as as possible so their land first and it was pretty much illegally taken from them any treaty that was made was broken by the u.s government any deal was made was made unfairly not just a matter of like the cost at the time but just it just wasn't favorable and even if it was the deal was a treaty uh which is usually based on land use because that's how indigenous tribes operated for the most part they did have hunting grads again it was we have rights to use this land, right? Not just hold it, accumulate wealth on it, passive income, what have you. So here's a court case. Judge rules New York took Mohawk land illegally in the 1800s. Federal judge has ruled that New York illegally took about 2,000 acres of land in St. Lawrence and Franklin counties from Mohawks in the 1800s. At issue is land known as the Hogansburg Triangle, a part of the territory set aside for Mohawks in the 1796 Treaty of Canaduga, New York, uh, where New York State itself bought the land from the St. Regis Mohawks in 1824 and 1825, but it didn't get approval from the federal government. So Judge Lawrence Kahn ruled in a summary judgment on Monday that the failure to get federal approval violated the Non-Intercourse Act of 1790, which established a legal relationship between Native nations and the United States government. Now, this relationship was never really followed in any real way, but these are woker times. (laughs) Woker. These are more civilized times. Maybe we actually follow treaties a little bit better. At least... In this case, we do. According to the treaty, states need federal approval to acquire native land. Now, of course, maybe it's just this is just the state level. The federal government can acquire native land however and however they like. They can make a treaty and then say, no, actually, it's ours anyway. Judge Kahn, we don't have to realize. So anyway, Judge Kahn ruled that the 1796 treaty quote did confer recognized title to the Saint Regis Indians. However, Khan did not rule what should happen as a result of this decision. That will be the subject of a future negotiation, as well as litigation. In addition to the Hogansburg Triangle, the ruling also affects one square mile in the town of Messina. Quote, to say that we are pleased is an understatement, said St. Regis Mohawk Tribal Chief Beverly Cook in a press release. Quote, we stand in the footprints of our parents and grandparents who fought relentlessly to claim our land that was illegally taken. The ruling is another chapter in the long history of the Mohawk land claims, which have been in the courts since the 80s, 300 years ago. So the uh, the triangle here is, um, it is abutting the Mohawk, and it's basically got the, one of the legs is the river, and then it's got news and so on and so on. State Route 37 runs through it. Eh? Yeah, pretty cool. So either the state is going to, well, if it was taken illegally, I can't imagine they have to buy it from the state. But what kind of negotiation? I guess uh, how uh, it'll get put in a land trust, perhaps. How how is how is it? How are they going to hold the land? You know. Um, but again, if it's added to their tribal lands, the Saint Regis Mohawks in this case. I think most of them are in Canada, maybe that's the issue. But of course, it's if they land, some of them will move back. Okay. Or maybe it's because there's there's private home there's private property owners here. What happens to them? Are they gonna get moved out? Is it is this is this white genocide in action? I'll let you decide, listener. A little early, but I'll play another piece of music for you. The landlord song. So that's this week's show. Please contact me to leave feedback, suggest topics, or join me on the program. Use my socials on Facebook, Twitter, and Macedon. Search what's left in Albany slash three left show. I'm also on Instagram, though I don't check it, but, you know, I'll get the notification, right? Uh, Dan J. Platt, P-L-A-A-T. Don't, but I do want you to check out www.3lefts.news.com which contains show notes and the archive of all episodes for both programs. Three Left Show is my leftist theory show where I discuss the strategies, practice, of the left for itself. But back to this program, where I want to wish you all well and encourage all listening to devote some time every week to a collective or community project as we all discover what is actually left here in Albany.
2: From Holland to America Became landlords where none had been before Soon one man owned half a million acres On both sides of the Hudson River shore He invited families to move in And give him 30% Of everything they grew every year This is how they pay the rent His name was Van Rensselaer He became one of the richest men on earth dollars is how much he'd be worth all this for doing nothing but saying all of this was his i have the power of the state behind me and i'm in the landlord is after 200 years of this and one year was greedier than his ancestors, dead and past. It was the 1840s, and things were changing fast. It was the straw that broke the back. The bottle was uncorked. They started organizing meetings, the tenant farmers of New York. They found the strength of numbers. They found the power of suggestion. They found each other asking the same question. Who gave you the right to be a landlord, to live a life of ease while others toil? Who gave you the right to be a rich man, while the rest of us pay you so we can work this soil? They vowed they would stop the rent collection. They vowed they'd bring this madness to an end. And when one blew the tin horn of distress, He soon found he had a thousand friends With calico skirts, masks upon their faces On horseback, armed with knives and guns They chanted and they yelled And they kept their farms And they kept the sheriffs on the run They asked, who gave you the right to be a landlord? Live a life of ease while others toil Who gave you the right to be a rich man? All the rest of us pay you so week and work this soil malicious tried to stop them but nothing could be done to break their will and by 1848 the landlords buckled sold their holdings to the farmers in the hills yes they overthrew this feudal system but it's replaced now by speculators and banks and you can still hear the homeless families asking of all the landed gentry in our ranks who gave you the right to be a landlord to live on While others toil, who gave you the right to be a rich man? While the rest of us pay you so we can work this soil, who gave you the right to be a landlord? To live a life of ease while others toil, who gave you the right to be a rich man? While the rest of us pay you so we can work this soil, who gave you the right?
0: Tell you how it will be There's one for you, 19 for me Cause I'm the tax man Yeah, I'm the tax man Should 5% appear too small Thankful I don't take it all Cos I'm the tax man Yeah, I'm the tax man If you drive a car, I'll car tax, tax the street If you try to sit, I'll it. tax your seat If you get too cold, I'll car. tax Take protect your food.